we operate in a space where there's a lot of talk about data, about algorithms, about systems that underpin all of these platforms. But ultimately, all of that means nothing at all without an artist who knows what they have to say and knows how to say it and has a story to tell and is good at telling that story. Hey guys, welcome to How Music Charts, where we pull back the curtain on today's music business, exploring music industry trends, music data, and the creativity that helps your favorite artists hit the charts. I'm your co-host, Jason, and you'll hear from our other co-host, Rutger very soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help the music industry leverage the power of data analytics. On this episode, we talk to founder and director of London-based firm Songular, Sam Lee. According to Songular's website, Songular is an independent music company that empowers fearless artists through strategic streaming campaigns. Their approach is artist first and data-driven. That means their bespoke campaigns are shaped by the stories their artists have to tell. They use data to link a strategy to the story. Songular's roster includes Joji, Bakar, Young T and Bugsy, Zara Larson, and Flume. Previously, he has served as a music editor for Deezer, a radio plugger, and in his earliest days, a broadcast assistant for the BBC and a regular contributor to British culture outlet NME. So without further ado, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Sam Lee. What's up, Sam? Hey, guys. Couldn't have said it better myself. Thanks, Jason. <laughs> We can send it over in case you want to use it anywhere. Um, you're coming to us from London proper, or are you just a little bit outside London right now? No, very much in London at the moment. Gotcha. Um, yeah, very gray, very cold, but all good. We want to start from the beginning when you were a wee lad in Swindon. Is that, is that the, am I saying that correctly? Yeah, very good. Were there signs that you were already destined for a music career that, that you are now? If so, what were they? If not, kind of what put you on this path? Um... I don't think there were any signs from an early age. I think I, I probably got into music quite late, to be honest. I think I was probably around 13 or 14 when I started having anything that resembles any cultural awareness uh, in terms of what was going on around me. Um, it was a, a David Bowie album that that put me on to sort of alternative music and, and, and that was the start of the path. Um, but I did decide, I think fairly early, that music was what I wanted to do. Maybe that was just a lack of having any other options at that point. But um, I decided when I was at school, I was, I was in bands and things like this and decided that I wasn't going to go to university after finishing college because I wanted to um, see if I could make something happen in Swindon while I, was, while I was doing that kind of thing. And so it was that that really led me to starting um you mentioned the the bbc role that i had at the um uh, at the beginning it was that decision to not go to uni that really led me to that because i was in swindon which is a regional town about an hour outside of london and you know growing up there I had this feeling of wanting to be doing something else and wanting to be getting away as i think most people do when they're growing up wherever they're from and so we'd spend a lot of time trying to get out to shows in in cities nearby and started writing about those shows started reviewing music started doing interviews and things like that writing for music websites and just working really hard on justifying to myself and probably my parents why i wasn't going to university <laughs> and it was that that led me to the um bbc role which was on the introducing show in, in in wiltshire which was the local station and for anyone who doesn't know the like bbc introducing is a platform run by the bbc for 
emerging artists throughout the UK. And so big shout out to the BBC Introducing um, team at the time, Marie Lennon and Will Walder, who let me come in and kind of fumble around with some cables and make cups of tea for a little while and pretend I knew what I was doing. Because I think it was that that then really set me on the path from there to like where things are now, which was via a job as a radio plugger, as you guys mentioned, which was pretty much a direct result of the, the work I was doing with Introducing. Spent a year doing that, probably wasn't very good at it, but picked up some pretty important transferable skills, I think, like having to find an angle to push things and having to keep on top of uh, relationships with people and all these things that have, have served me quite well since then. And then the streaming side of, of where we get to begins around... 2011 2012 when i joined the streaming service deezer as um editorial assistant at that time yeah. um about six months after it had launched in the uk which we'll get into um but before we leave this kind of like early kind of era in your career when you were a contributor at nme and when you were um you know running cables and getting getting tea <laughs> for for the bbc program what was this very much an exploratory period for you or were there things that you were doing at that time that kind of still play a role in what you do now? I think I was figuring out what I was good at and figuring out what I enjoyed doing. I think having something like the writing was a really good practice in self-discipline because it was just off my own back and it was something that I had to work on myself without, you know, it was all freelance and by freelance, I mean pretty much exclusively unpaid um so it's the kind of thing you don't have someone breathing down your neck to sort out you're not really relying on it to do anything you're just trying to get something away and i think that's something that's served me quite well since then having that feeling of whether it's you know being self-starting or anything like that i'm not too sure but at the time i think that was something that was really crucial but to be honest it was mainly me figuring out without really any clear guidance or mentorship from, you know, industry professionals or anything like that, where I was going to end up and how I was going to make this work and how I was going to make a love for music and what was kind of a, de a developing love for supporting emerging artists, how I was going to make that into a career. So there certainly wasn't any grand plan at this point. I think looking back with hindsight, you can kind of see the radio plugger route and you can see the streaming route and they kind of come together at the end and it feels all quite conveniently <laughs> uh, tied together. That's, that's not really, that wasn't going through my head at the time. That's something that was sort of a happy coincidence, I guess. You mentioned your time at Deezer. Um, could you tell us sort of how you view Deezer, how you viewed it when you were there and how you view it now, both in today's streaming world and like in relation to all the other DSPs? Um, well, when, when I was there, it was a dream job. I mean, I joined in, I think it was, I think it was the first day back in, in 2012. Um, so however many years ago that is. And as far as I could tell, I was still fairly unfamiliar with the inner workings of streaming platforms at that point. And to be honest, they were still basically in their infancy. As far as I could tell, I was going to be listening to music all day <laughs> and maybe writing a couple of bits for the newsletter. And that was 
pretty much the extent of my expectations. And I was thrilled with that. I thought that's great. That's, that's really all I want to be doing um, at that point. And so I absolutely loved it. I enjoyed being at a company in that space where things were developing so quickly and you felt like you were on the forefront of um, a change in the industry. I enjoyed seeing how um, rapidly things could change when there was sort of a, a shift in, a, in, in the wider collective of that industry. And just the day-to-day work of, of, of the role was brilliant. You know, it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. It was sitting and listening to music all day, deciding what we were going to support and then supporting it. And then that progressed. But initially at the start, that role was pretty much exclusively limited to we would put banners on the top of the web page and we would send out newsletters. There was very little playlisting involved at that point. In fact, we had one weekly playlist that we would update on a Monday. I think it was when it was when the UK new releases came out on a Monday that was called the the Deezer 10. Um, 10 tracks every week, 10 new tracks. Um, quite simple. That was the extent of it. And this is at a time when playlisting really wasn't something that was done. Um, so as the role progressed into that, I enjoyed that a lot. And then the second part of your question, what I think about it now, I think it's a really important part of the landscape. I always felt that as an underdog um, in the global streaming space, Deezer has opportunities to do really interesting things. And I've got to say, I'm really pleased to see over the last few years in particular, they're, they're, they're doing that. You know, They're leading the conversation around user-centric payments along with SoundCloud and things like this that I think some of the more well-known services struggle to action, Deezer is able to do that. Um, and I always felt that was Deezer's great opportunity. And that was why I enjoyed working there because it felt like we were able to treat it as a startup and we didn't weren't subjected to the same pressures as some of the more well-established, well-known platforms, which um, I think helped just make it a fun place to work. But also from an editorial point of view, this was you know, going back five, six, seven, eight years where the data available was nowhere near as powerful as it is now, it made the editorial role really rewarding as well because you could take those risks. Can you talk a little bit? So for people who aren't familiar, the editorial system on Deezer is a little bit different from like Spotify where, you know, editorials playlists are curated by, you know, Spotify. Whereas on Deezer, there are specific names attached to these playlists. What was the reasoning for that? And how does a music editor at Deezer spend their day? Are they literally the only one sort of choosing what tracks goes on each of these playlists? Or do they have a team around them that is actually this name? So the first part of the question, why that was, or why that has become the case that the editors are given a public profile from the very beginning, as I mentioned, Deezer was probably the early adopter of human curation and editorial playlists. And so that was always a big USP. And it was only a little bit later that all of the other platforms saw the power and the potential of that and, and started doing the same. And so for Deezer, having that human element was always a really big um, part of the platform, having a face that people could trust and, and recognize 
um, as the person who was putting together these playlists. I think the feeling definitely was and probably still is that that helps make a smaller service feel more intimate and feel more um, personalized to you as the user. And in terms of what they'll spend their time doing. It really depends because there's a mixture of local editors and global editors. The global editors look after the different genres and the local editors obviously look after their respective countries. Um, when, when I was there, there were two of us at first for the UK and Ireland and then just me. Um, and so it really was a case of you had complete control and complete editorial control over the playlists that were in your name. Um, I think it's expanded a bit since then but the principle remains the same you've got that person's name on the profile and ultimately it's up to them to program the playlists that appear on that profile do you think that human element to curation changes the relationship that deezer might have with artists and or labels like does it make it maybe more easier or more encouraging for say indie artists to get on those playlists? I don't know if it's easier because the competition is exactly the same as it would be on any other platform. You're still competing against tens of thousands of other tracks every single day. You're still competing against tens of thousands of other artists from around the world in your same lane. And, you know, I think Deezer's editorial curation is as solid as, as anybody's. It definitely creates a feeling of familiarity. And I think a feeling that there is a human behind this playlist. And I think artists do respond well to that. And I think it does, it is encouraging because whereas on other platforms, it's a little bit more unclear who's actually doing the curation for these at least you feel like okay i may not know how to contact this person i may not know any of that i might not have the infrastructure in place but at least i know who does it um and i think that does give you a bit of a morale boost as a independent artist hmm. are playlists still sort of the new radio or do you think say like platforms like tiktok are sort of eating into that sort of music discovery market share i don't think playlists are the only place you discover music anymore i'm not sure they ever work to be honest I, th I think that was that was always a bit of hyperbole to be honest um i think radio has always played a big part obviously live has always played a big part social media increasingly over the last decade or so has played a huge part um tiktok is another element in in the puzzle i think i don't think streaming or playlist importance has been diminished at all i just think there's more ways for artists to reach their audience there's more avenues there now there's more parts to the puzzle yeah i'm a little bit reluctant to say whether something is the new something else because more often than not it isn't mm. <laughs> um that old thing that you're comparing it to is normally still there and doing what right. it's always been doing but there's definitely a more varied landscape now um, and there are more ways for artists to reach the people they're trying to reach, which is only ever a good thing. So all the time we get asked by artists about Playola or essentially like paying to get your music on certain playlists and whether or not it's worth it to do that. What's your answer to that question? And as a sort of legitimate 
playlist plugger yourself, what separates services like yours from those pay to play schemes? Yeah. So I think like, so the first thing probably to clarify is I'm not particularly comfortable with the term playlist plugger because I think plugging is not really what we do. Like to, to be clear, we, like we'll work with artists, we work with labels, we work with management, we work with distributors, and our aim is always to provide them with a focused and a bespoke service that helps them to run better streaming campaigns. And that can take a variety of forms, whether it's handling uh, release strategy or DSP partnerships or a more involved uh, label services approach is not really a one size fits all thing because streaming is such a complex area. Um, having a straight out of the box approach never really works. But what we don't do is plug. <laughs> um, I think anyone who's calling themselves a playlist plugger, for me, that's normally a pretty big red flag that either they're not being completely truthful about what it is they do or the way they go about achieving those means is maybe not entirely legitimate. Um, so the short answer to the question whether people should ever pay to be added to playlists is no. It is a little bit more complicated than that, I think, because playola is a term, I think, that gets applied to a few different things and they're all slightly different. One way it gets used is when we're talking about marketing companies perhaps charging record labels for X number of streams, um, which are likely achieved through slightly shady means, whether that's, you know, through accounts that aren't real or stream farms or bots or whatever it is, that's not okay, obviously, and shouldn't be encouraged and shouldn't be done because taking away everything else, it decreases the size of the pie for everybody else who's trying to go through legitimate paths to success. The other side of it is when you've got an independent playlister who's maybe found themselves with a playlist that has a few thousand followers and will rack up a few thousand streams and they'll pop their Instagram in the bio and you message them and they say, yeah, sure, we'll add you, but it's going to cost you $20. I mean, morally, I have less of an issue with this because I don't see it as being any different to people paying TikTokers or influencers to support their track or their product or their brand or whatever. In fact, I think it's probably far less damaging than a lot of the stuff that gets promoted on Instagram and TikTok without any um, warnings. And people do that quite readily. But I would still advise artists not to do it because you just don't know where the streams are coming from. You don't know where, um, you don't know how legitimate that person is anyway. And also recently Spotify has shown they're not afraid of just pulling down a bunch of stuff that has probably picked up streams from places like that. Mm. And you really, you really, really don't want to be on the receiving end of that. So that's actually it. My long answer is no different to my short answer, uh, which is uh, probably avoid. <laughs> right. So what can artists do? Say they're totally independent. What can they do to get playlisting essentially? Like, are there important relationships with 
curators that they can form or how exactly do they end up on big editorials by themselves? So I think the thing that we always try to encourage and try to look for whenever we're working anything, whether it's a brand new independent artist or something that's more established is just this idea of continual incremental growth. If you're showing that week after week, month after month, you've always got a chance of being picked up by somebody or something. Um, so it's really simple, but the, to start off with, it's just about seeing week on week, what's one thing I can do that's going to take my streams from 50 weekly streams to 60. And then the next week from 60 to 75 and the next week from 75 to 90 and so on. And a lot of it is, is just a bit of hard graft, to be honest. It's not particularly glamorous. It's asking your friends to add it to their playlist. It's getting other artists, you know, to add it to their playlist. You, you know, maybe you like one of their tracks and you want to do the same. It's reaching out to, you know, you can use chart metric and, and we will use chart metric to find similar artists and see what independent playlisters are supporting them and reach out to them. And, you know, these people are human and they want to be supporting artists that they love. And so, although some of them were going to come back to you and say, yeah, sure, I'll add it to my playlist, but it's a hundred dollars. Others won't, um, you know, there's, there's submit hub, which is, can be effective if you've got the right sort of track and in the right sort of place. And it's just about getting these things moving, um, to start off with and being able to show that there's an audience there who's actually interested in the track, at which point you kind of have to have faith in the streaming system that it will get flagged, that it will get picked up because it's quite difficult sometimes to make that jump from organic support that you've picked up yourself to editorial support. That's where, you know, that's where labels, distributors, managers, people like us come in um, to help with that transition. But the best thing artists can do is as much off their own back as possible to build up some kind of momentum because without that there's there's it's really really difficult to do anything because editorial has shifted slightly you know we've mentioned the the increase in the amount of data available to everybody that's now available to editors as well and so their decisions are far more informed by what people are listening to and what the appetite is for tracks and releases so although again they're human too believe it or not they will take a risk on things and support things they like but it's far easier for them to do that and to justify that if there's data backing up that decision which they're able to access mm. so before we get into more of that data just to sort of cap this section off your instagram bio has the hashtag artists be artists why is that important to the ethos of Songular and how does Songular help artists be artists? It's important to us because we operate in a space where there's a lot of talk about, I mean, we're talking about it in our data, about algorithms, about the code and the systems that underpin all of these platforms and underpin potential success on these platforms. But ultimately all of that means nothing at all without an artist who knows what they have to say and knows how to say it and has a story to tell and is good at telling that story. So the idea behind the artists be artists hashtag is through Songular, we can take care of 
the stuff that we really don't want an artist who's working with us to be concerned about, which is monitoring the data and so on. We want them to be worrying about being an artist, doing what they do best, creating art and music and connecting with their audience. We're well-placed to analyze and contextualize and help an artist to amplify their story. But in order to do any of that, the artist has to have a story to do that with. So that's, that's where that comes from. And it's just, it just sort of speaks to a wider attitude that we have, which is in a world where people are talking about skip rates and save rates and collection rates all the time. Like, great. I love all that stuff, but I don't really want artists to be worrying about that unless they want it. And lots of them do want to be across it, but the thing that they do best is, is be an artist. And so we allow them to do that. I think it's a beautiful philosophy. Um, it's something that even we as a data company try to talk about sometimes when we create content is we think there's a place for data and it's not necessarily everywhere, especially from the creative side. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I think it works perfectly as a way of amplifying what's there. The artist, you know, none of us are in this because we love data. It, it comes alongside the art. It comes alongside the creativity. Yeah. No one, no one bops to a spreadsheet, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, some of us do. Yeah, some of us, some of us. yeah sorry, like no offense, I don't mean to. <laughs> um, so, so, so as you've been speaking, you know, your big part of your work at Slangler is just to grow audiences uh, for emerging artists. So, what are your own criteria for working with uh, clients? You know, whether it be a certain aesthetic that you gravitate yourself personally towards, um, a certain amount of business savvy that some of your potential clients might have, personality types, so on and so forth. Um. It does vary from artist to artist. And I think we've always been really careful not to pigeonhole ourselves into one genre. And I mean, part of that reason is because I don't think, I don't think most people listen by genre anymore. I think it's becoming irrelevant quite quickly. The kind of non-negotiables from our side are working with, from an artistic side, working with artists who have credibility and authenticity, all this, what I was saying before, knowing what they want to say, knowing how they want to say it, being true to themselves is a little bit of a cliche, but I think coming from that space of integrity where they can have some kind of cultural significance. And then on the team side, it's working with teams who are willing to embrace, you know, the stuff that, the stuff that we're looking at, the stuff that we're doing, who are willing to let us in, give us access to data, give us, um, basically what we need and treat us as an integral part of the team in the same way that they would with, you know, their own colleagues and, 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 you know, people at the label. And then obviously we just have to like the music. We have to think the music's going to work. We have to enjoy listening to the music. It's, um, you know, we're quite fortunate in that the business model has never been to operate at enormous scale when it comes to, the artists that we're working with. In fact, it's been the opposite. It's always been a real focus to keep it as tight and bespoke as possible because most of the people that we're working with come to us because they feel like they might need some extra strength added to the team. And so if we're not treating them as a priority, that kind of defeats the object. So yeah, the criteria is quite varied, but it, it's coming from a place of artistic credibility and integrity and being willing to kind of buy into what it is we're doing, which, you know, nowadays is, is not such a issue because everybody understands the importance of streaming five years ago is a little bit different because people were still coming to terms with that and figuring it out and we're still unsure about what it means. And so 
the conversations we have have changed a lot, but then the role has changed a lot as well. So it sort of reflects that. So listening to some other talks you've given and some of the things that are on your website, you you really lean heavily into not only billing, you know, initially a streaming audience, whether that's ours themselves or after your team comes on board, but once you have that kind of initial wave of data, kind of using that to make like your process of like kind of using it in a circular fashion. So you have this sort of data and then you can do certain things to help grow your audience. And then that gives you more data. And then you use that data to, can you tell us a little bit about that process? Um, some of your philosophies on kind of that cycle of, of data and, and decisions and actions. For me personally, I'm always looking at what the bridges, if you like, are between streaming, which is where my focus in my head always is because that's been my background for the last 10 years. And the real world, if you like. <laughs> um, and I think one of the great things about the data available through streaming is the ability to transfer that elsewhere and the ability to use that in other parts of the campaign and bring it all together. And so for us, what we're talking about really when we're talking about, we talk about all of these different elements feeding into each other quite a lot, for instance. So you can't have something that's just a success at streaming. You've got to build it elsewhere. And so for us, our initial focus is always what can we do at streaming that's going to impact things off streaming? And then how can we use those things off streaming to feed back into streaming and build that further? So we then have more of a story to take back off streaming and kind of continue to build it in this way. So I guess an example that people talk about a lot at the moment is uh, TikTok, where we're saying, you know, yes, we're building something um, at streaming and our focus is building audiences there, but we're also looking to break tracks through TikTok campaigns and we're looking to reach people through that platform as well. TikTok for me is a really important one because it's one of the really clear bridges between platforms. So you, you, the simplest way to describe it, I suppose, is to say if a track goes viral on TikTok, there's a million playlists on Spotify that are TikTok viral hits. And so you'll be in all of those playlists as well. So you'll start seeing things build up on Spotify. And then off the back of that, you can push to take it outside of that world and build through other playlists. Um, like, uh, through other playlist channels too. Um, same thing goes for gaming. You know, you can be have a track featured in in a game, or you can have something that goes into a montage somewhere, and suddenly you're on a million gaming playlists on Spotify, and you can then take that and you know start feeding that into editors. You can start feeding that into the wider story and looking to take it outside of that channel. And then with that story that's building up elsewhere, you've got something to take off platform again and look to just tick off all of these boxes along the route. But I think streaming provides a really valuable backbone to all of that because you've got somewhere to keep bringing people back to where they're able to engage with the artist, albeit not in the same way they can on on the social media platform, but obviously the streams are monetized. And so you're continuing to build up this thing. And it's a metric that people, the reason I took, you know, I'm using Spotify as an example in this is because the numbers are public. And so when people are talking to radio or whoever, it's the Spotify numbers that are often mentioned alongside YouTube. And so it just helps to build up the entire thing. And the data side of it is really important because 
without that, you don't know who you're talking to. You don't know who you're targeting. You don't know where you're supposed to be hitting these people. And so for us, it's really important to be able to monitor, monitor that and really important to be able to analyze that because without it, you're sort of going in blind and you don't really know you don't really know a who you're talking to. You don't know where you're supposed to be talking to them and you don't know what kind of messages they're responding to. So the streaming data is one thing and then there's data from other platforms that helps to inform that conversation as well. And I think all of this becomes more and more important as we start to see algorithms being more responsible for a lot of the playlisting on platforms such as Spotify. Um, the more you can build up this organic support elsewhere, the more it's going to impact your Spotify story, the more of a case you've got to take back into the the teams at, at DSPs. But I don't know. I do, I do think that a lot of the time it can be kind of alienating for independent artists. And by that, I mean completely independent artists to talk about data to any granular degree. And I don't mean that, I don't mean that some patronizing at all, but a lot of the time there isn't the resources to, put into capitalizing on anything that's being seen in the data. So I think there's there's a bit of work to be done still by the industry as a whole, by, by streaming platforms to help not only say to artists, here's what's going on, here's who's engaging with you as an artist, here's who's listening to your music, but also to provide some assistance on like action points after that because otherwise you're sitting there with all the data in the world. But, you know, if you don't know what to do with it, if you don't know what the next step is, it can be kind of overwhelming and yeah, a little bit, a little bit um, difficult to deal with, I think. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. Let's put, let's put our nerd caps on for a second uh, in terms of actual like metrics, for example, and this could be, we'll open it up to, you know, streaming platforms, social media platforms, you know, audience demographics, whatever. What kind of data do you tend to gravitate towards? What's important to you? And, and what data do you see is actually kind of overrated uh, that you read about a lot and people talk a lot about, but you're like, hmm, not big of a deal to me, if, if, if there is at all. Um, I don't know how much thought I've given to overrated data before. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there is. That's fine. Um, give me a second to think about this. Yeah, sure. Because I like this question. <laughs> so I think that there's a general conversation within the industry around a number of data points and a number of metrics that are seen as sort of absolute um, benchmarks. And a lot of the time I feel like that's quite unhelpful because while I'm not sure whether there's one uh, metric in particular that I would say is overrated, <clears throat> there are a lot that we measure campaigns by, you know, I've mentioned skip rate, save rate collection rate, things like this, where if you take them out of context, they're completely meaningless because there's so many influential factors that are at play here, whether it's whether there's been any editorial support, where the streams are coming from. There's so many things that can affect all of this. So I think that the idea of judging campaigns entirely by the data we see is quite tricky because you have to put some context into the mix there. I know that's not a juicy, a juicy headline <laughs> in terms of overrated data, but I think there's people are coming to terms with 
what the data is and what the metrics are. And that's great. I think there's still a little bit of work to be done across the board for people to really understand what affects that data, what affects each of those metrics individually and how they all play a part in shaping the overall picture. Yeah, no, agreed. I, I, there's definitely a, um, a difference between numbers in a spreadsheet and actual intelligence that you can do stuff with. Um, and yeah. I think that's a gap that, you know, has usually been filled in, you know, outside of the music industry data analysts at, you know, a retail company or what have you um, to, to, to do that translation. I think that's the part where for sure is a space to fill. And I'm sure, you know, companies like your, like yours fills. Yeah, totally. I, th- I think that's the key being the, being at the intersection between the two and being able to translate. You asked about things that I find genuinely useful in terms of metrics. The only one is organic growth. I don't think anything else matters too much as long as there's organic as long as there's an increase in organic appetite for something that's not driven by outside factors that to me is the one that jumps out the most every single time even like i said if it's just from 50 streams one week to 150 the next like great let's keep monitoring that because something's happening and we might be able to jump on it gotcha so in terms of like the future of audience growth so you know podcasting live streaming Streaming video on demand, you know, sync licensing, NFTs. Yeah, I said it, NFTs. Mm. Um, it took 45 minutes. <laughs> you know, someone, so someone said recently, you know, we're possibly in a, a post-artist era, you know, where most people just care about tracks. Uh, we've even heard Tommy Boy's Tom Silverman call this the sub-single era, where people only digesting music in 15-second snippets, as we've talked about with TikTok and other platforms. Fitness startups are even taking music and changing the beats per minute, changing even the instrumentation using AI, you know, depending on what the user is doing and what their context is. How do you view all of these different forces um, from the artist's perspective? Um, is it too much to take in? Do you see them all as opportunities? I see most of them as opportunities. I think people who are mostly listening to music as 15 second sounds on TikTok are also listening to it elsewhere. And I think that provides a window into an artist for people who wouldn't otherwise discover them. There's definitely a lot to be done to make up the gap between somebody discovering not even the track, not even the chorus, but a 15 second hook within the chorus through to caring about an artist but i think that's just something that the industry has to has to work on and has to deal with i think it's a good thing that more people are coming into the funnel of artist discovery you know something streaming has been talking about from day one is the funnel of subscribers and getting people into the funnel so that you know some people will trickle down and and pay i think the same thing applies when it comes to artist discovery like yeah 99% of these people might not want to go on and follow the artist, but some of them will, and that's a good thing. And then I think if the artist is compelling enough and, and the campaign's solid enough, it feels like that can only be a good thing. Um, I get that it like, it's a bit of a minefield and it's, there's a lot to take in for artists and a lot to stay across. And I guess that's where you need um, you know, your team to help keep on top of things. But I don't see any of this stuff as a threat. 
I don't see any of it as a problem. I think it's all part of the evolution of consumption. I think it all comes back to the artist in the end. Um, I remember, I think it was on another episode of How Music Charts, you guys mentioning the AI pop stars. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's something else. <laughs> you know, when it all trickles down and it's an it's a, it's a algorithm at the end of it, again, I still think it's just another... A, a, another channel of consumption and it's just another way of music being put out into the world but i can see how that that might be a little bit more difficult for people to get their head around but i think music being used in short form um in non-traditional ways like great uh, that that's a good thing cool uh, so you've kind of talked about this before but we've been talking a lot about playlisting obviously but i wanted to ask about things that either Songular does or that, you know, an artist can do outside of the DSP ecosystem to fuel that audience growth, especially on DSPs. Yeah. So what are the sort of like digital strategies or practical actions that an artist can do today uh, based on all of these marketing channels that are available to them to drive that growth on DSPs? Um, well, like I say, for, for me, I always approach this with more than one eye on what the impact is going to be on streaming. Um, and so my answer to this is probably going to be slightly biased because I'm coming at it from from that perspective uh, rather than um, from any other angle. Like I say, there's the, there's the things we see directly impacting streaming in the shortest possible way. And that's TikTok, that's gaming in general. Um, outside of that, it really, it, this is going to sound like a, this is going to sound like I'm sitting on the fence a bit, but it, it really does depend on the artist. I think the thing that is most important for the artist is being able to find where they're comfortable being themselves and where they can communicate their message most clearly and most uh, naturally, and then being able to find their audience on that platform. So maybe that is TikTok. Maybe they've got, you know, a personality that is well suited to, short clips on TikTok, or maybe they're happy duetting with people on TikTok or making beats for people to rap over on TikTok, in which case, like, great, that's what they should do. There's still a lot of artists that aren't comfortable doing that. There's still artists that don't want to be quite so front and center of the digital campaign and would rather the music do the talking or would rather they play a slightly different role in that. And so for them, trying to get, trying to say to them, you have to be on TikTok. This is the only way you're going to succeed. It's going to be damaging, I think, in the long run. And it's not going to help them. It's not going to help them grow creatively because it's not the right forum for them. And it's probably going to make them feel a little bit down about the whole thing because they feel like they're not able to do what they want to do because they can't get the hang of this platform where actually what they'd be better off doing is something completely different where they do feel comfortable. Um, 
So I don't want to shirk the question <laughs> and I don't want to provide a completely useless answer to any like, independent artist who might be listening. But I think the key thing is, is, is finding out where is your most comfortable being yourself as an artist. And at that point, you can start to dig into what it is you need to be doing to connect with the audience. I think a lot of it is just being sort of fastidious in producing content and testing things and seeing what works and seeing what doesn't and seeing what you like and seeing what your fans like and honing it slowly over time like that. And I think there is an expectation a lot of the time that, you know, an artist puts out three tracks and doesn't see any pickup on, on streaming and starts to get a bit disheartened by that, you know, that's part of growth as an artist. It's, it's difficult and it can be uncomfortable, but I think that's part of, that's part of the journey. And so tying back into streaming, what my advice always is, is just, you know, continually be releasing music, just be getting stuff out there. Even if it's not a hit at this time, it will help provide context when people do discover the track that is a hit. It'll help people to understand who you are as an artist when they do come across you. And, you know, I'm sure there are tons of artists who can track how things are doing using chart metrics, Spotify popularity index tool, for instance, and they'll see over time as things get released, they hit a few more release radars. They start getting some more streams from that each time there'll be incremental growth, which like I say, is, is, is kind of for me, the key metric here. And suddenly they'll either be presented with people who can help them to take it to the next level, or these things will start to happen anyway, because of the system set up by, by DSPs. Um, it's difficult and there's so much competition and it can take a long time. And I think especially now over the last year, the way streaming has changed and the new release cycle has been blunted slightly by the pandemic and by people seeking out stuff that they're comfortable with listening to and seeking out more contextual releases. There's definitely a shift towards situational listening rather than new music listening. And that can make things a little bit more um, difficult. I think for brand new artists, it can slow things down certainly. Um, so the advice for me is just like, you know, try not to be disheartened by that because it's happening to everyone. It can be difficult. It can be a long process, but if there's a constant feed of content and it's all of good quality and you're saying something that people can connect with, it, it, it will connect. That was a beautiful answer. <laughs> all of that. Perfect way to end that. So let's move on to the speed round. So basically, we're just going to ask you or go through headlines, music industry headlines and or trends that have happened recently and just get your sort of quick take analysis on them. Um, so the first one is... Scooter Braun selling Ithaca Holdings to Hybe, H-Y-B-E, which is formerly Big Hit Entertainment, which is where BTS was. Um, so Korean company buying Ithaca Holdings for a billion dollars, it looks like. Uh, what does this say? And by the way, they also are launching or uh, co-launching a label with Universal in America as well. What do you think this says about 
where their sights are um, looking into the future. It probably speaks a lot to the global nature of music consumption now, doesn't it? I think 10 years ago, something happening like this would have been, while not unthinkable, quite unlikely. Um, the fact that there's such a big deal happening between two enormous global superpowers <laughs> is um, testament to how borders have been broken down over the last 10, 8, 6, 5 years. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know a huge amount about the the terms of the deal or or anything like that. I'm sure people have done plenty of plenty of digging in into that area of it. But there's a lot of acquisitions going on at the moment, aren't there? I think there's a lot of acquisitions when it comes to um, music rights, uh, and so it's probably not entirely surprising. But I mean, saying that, it sounds like I I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely didn't. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it speaks to the global nature of, 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 of consumption now. So we've mentioned this this one a couple times now. I hate to be cliche, but I think we have to uh, talk about this trend, which is NFTs or non-fungible tokens. Fad, revolution, novelty, or like a niche kind of like vinyl or something. Right now, I would put it in the niche kind of like vinyl category. Um, I doubt it's a fad. I'm not sure yet whether it's a revolution. I think there's applications of it that are really interesting. Like you saw Lucky Me's Jack Green selling the publishing to a track of his. It, it feels to me like there's there's something interesting there. I think the selling of NFTs as, you know, a, a visual, an audio visual token, like, great. That's a great way for artists to create a new revenue stream right now. Is it any good for artists who are developing and looking to build audiences and fan bases? Mm, I'm less sure that it is in the way that it's been done so far, um, purely because it takes, you know, you read about all the artists who are making lots and lots of money out of NFTs and it's artists that already have a, a, a name in, in that space. So I'm going to say for the time being, a niche like vinyl, although more expensive a lot of the time, but potentially something more interesting than that in the future if the, some of these avenues that are being explored at the moment continue to be explored. Cool. Although I have noticed that the stories around them have completely dried up entirely <laughs> after a period of time. I don't think that means that it's a fad. I think it just means that the, the clicks are probably decreasing on those right. stories, but um, it'll be interesting to see what happens as you know, the world starts to return to normal in inverted commas. <laughs> so this next one is from Music Ally and it's about Spotify's new artist genre and decade based mixes. So it's essentially um, personalized playlists that are an expansion of the daily mix on Spotify, and they're you know based on artists, genres, decades. Um, so you can have like a the Avalanches and Dua Lipa are 
the first four artist mixes, apparently. What does this say about Spotify's playlist strategy right now? I know this is meant to be quick fire, but I'm, I'm going to take it a little bit wider than, than just that question. Go for it. I would say that since I started Songular five years ago, the biggest change I've seen in the editorial programming curation landscape at streaming is this increase in personalization. You've gone from having playlists that were exclusively programmed by an editor and a browse page that was largely the same for everyone to having a browse page that's pretty much completely different for everybody. And now a load of playlists that are curated half by editors and half by algorithms in the personalized playlist. So um, how those work for anyone who doesn't know is you've got a, an editor will select a pool of tracks, say 300 tracks, and then an algorithm will whittle that down to 80 or so based on each user's listening history. Um, and this has been a pretty profound shift, I think, because suddenly the impact from playlists is far less um, predictable. And I think, it's, I think it's mostly a good thing because if you're an artist and you're looking to get your first shot in some of these playlists, having a bigger pool of tracks to be able to get into and then be seeded out by the algorithm as it sees fit is quite encouraging because you know you can get in there and then as things keep growing you can hopefully get in front of more people um but naturally the algorithm's favoring certain types of artists it's naturally favoring artists for whom the data is already looking good um which makes sense because you know, Spotify wants to serve its users. And if it knows people are already in reacting well and engaging with the track, it's natural. It's going to serve that track to more people. Um, but I do think there's a, there's a wider point there, which is that, you know, Spotify are very keen to push the idea that their editors aren't gatekeepers to playlists and they're stepping away from this traditional um, promo relationship that, you know, radio or, TV had seen in the past where you'd have these gatekeepers who are in charge of artists that would get supported. And the idea that editors aren't the gatekeepers anymore, I think is completely accurate, but the idea that gatekeepers don't exist anymore, I think is, is, is incorrect because they've not gone anywhere. They're just sitting in a different part of the building. Um, and so I think this rise in algorithmic playlisting, whilst I'm completely for it in principle, because as an artist, you can be more confident that your track's being put in front of the right people because they're going to have relevant tastes. And that means that the data is going to look better for you. And, you know, all of this stuff just helps things move in the right direction. I just think there's a conversation that needs to be had and is starting to be had around how the algorithms are programmed and how they're put in place. Because, you know, we have this idea of algorithms as a kind of cold robotic thing or a few lines of code dictating to us like fleshy humans <laughs> about what, what we should be listening to. But of course, they're, they're, they're programmed by humans. And 
Spotify has always been really hot on the ethics of what they're doing and how editorial decisions can impact artists' careers, artists' lives. They're really careful with all of that stuff. And so I'm sure that this is something they're looking at really closely. And especially there have been some stories in the last few days where a report came out suggesting that the Spotify algorithm was inherently sexist and would serve more male artists than it would female artists. I know they're going to be looking at all of that stuff really closely because as these algorithms become responsible for serving us more of the music we're listening to, it's really important that the ethics that Spotify apply to their editorial output are also being applied to the algorithmic output. And it's not exclusive to Spotify. It's a, it's a wider thing. You know, there's been Amazon had a similar thing a couple of years ago with a AI hiring tool that was found to have racial bias. And there's loads of problems around this kind of stuff. So your question was about mixes. I hope I've answered it. <laughs> Absolutely. And then some. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, mixes are great. And I think I suffer from decision fatigue when it comes to Spotify all the time and any other platform too. You know, I sit there staring at the homepage for hours before just closing my laptop. So anything like that, that helps people easily discover artists that they already, you know, whether that's artists they already know or, or ones that are new to them, I'm all for. I think there just has to be a lot of care put into uh, how that's rolled out. So to stick with the same theme, um, but slightly different, because now we're going to include sponsors with this. So this is via Music Allies Bulletin. The headline is Spotify on repeat, the on repeat playlist opens up to sponsors after 12 billion streams. So the details on this is uh, after about a year and a half since its launch on repeat has generated more than 12 billion streams. It is now opening up this particular personalized playlist to brands. So becoming the second personalized playlist after Discover Weekly to be made available for sponsorship. In this case, currently at 30 countries, TurboTax in the US is one of the first to take advantage. Uh, one of their ambitions is to compete with radio for advertising dollars. Thoughts on, on this? I mean, they have to look at ways of increasing revenue generated on the free tier. That's something that is a given. So I'm not, so yeah, I think this makes sense. Anything that can help to increase the royalty rate on free tier streams or make the experience uncomfortable enough that users are going to sign up to premium. It's all talking about that, that funnel again, help, help to increase the flow of people through the funnel for me is, is positive. Again, there's, there's wider issues with how it gets implemented, but as a very general top line answer, I think it makes sense. And I think it's probably the right thing to do. Gotcha. All right. This next one uh, is an interesting one. Also for Music Allies Bulletin, artist Bad Baby makes $1 million USD plus from OnlyFans in only six hours. So rapper Bad Baby um, made in the first six hours, a little bit over $750,000 USD from subscriptions a little bit over 5,000 from tips and 200, over 267,000 from payments for DMs or direct messages. Charging $23.99 a month for her subscriptions to her OnlyFans profile 
And the company itself is uh, recently announced uh, they are going to have a creative fund with over 20,000 uh, British pound for musicians as it tries to continue to expand beyond its core base of adult entertainment stars. <laughs> Thoughts? <laughs> um, I, I think it's amazing. I think it's so difficult now for artists to be able to directly generate revenue from fans who are willing to pay that directly to them. Um, I think I think it's great because it's a direct way for fans to put money in the pockets of the artists that they like, whether it's whether it's only fans or you know Spotify's tipping or anything else. I'm all for it. To me, it feels like artists taking things into their own hands and going slightly off piste, which I always really respect and finding, finding ways around, you know, systems and frameworks that might be in place already. So perhaps there's a wider um, point there about why an artist would be forced to resort to a platform that isn't traditionally a music platform in order to make money, but equally, why shouldn't they? You know, if, if it was, I think the only reason it's a conversation that results in raised eyebrows is because it's only fans and because of the association with that. Um, I think it's really shrewd. I think it's really smart. And I think, you know, if I could make a million dollars from DMing people, I, I, I wouldn't hesitate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, last one we got here, uh, also from Music Allies Bulletin. It, honestly, quite similar, but curious about your thoughts on Clubhouse. Headline is Clubhouse adds payments features to tip talkers uh, that you like. So they're introducing a, a payments feature. And 100% uh, of the payments will go directly to the recipient. Thoughts on, I guess, just Clubhouse and, and that particular tidbit? I'm not sure how many thoughts I, I have on, on Clubhouse. I think it's, um, I've not spent a huge amount of time on there myself, but... In terms of opening up another platform for people to have unfiltered conversation, I think that's a good thing. I think there's potential there for artists to really go in on it that has been, as of yet, largely untapped. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would I would kind of reserve judgment on how the payments feature rolls out and, until having seen it in action but i think it's it's probably something they have to do to keep people who are becoming well known through the app on the app and to keep that being the center of conversation so i suppose it makes sense from 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 that perspective but that's probably the extent of my opinion on that <laughs> all right well so thanks so much for chatting with uh, with, with us today sam uh, is there a way for people to contact you on social media or anything like that if they want to get in touch uh, yeah, so you can find Songular on Instagram at Songular Music or I'm on LinkedIn, Sam Lee. Sam Lee. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Sam, for joining us and uh, good luck to the rest of your, your moving endeavors. <laughs> thanks so much, guys. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. As part of our effort to equip artists with the power of music analytics, we've just rolled out a new artist tier, which you can sign up for at app.chartmetric.com slash plan slash artist for about the price of a coffee per week. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and podcast notes are at blog.chartmetric.com. 
You can also subscribe there for additional insights delivered to your inbox right after we publish. Did we mention we have a YouTube channel? That's right, subscribe for chart metric tutorials and tips for indie artists. Follow our thoughts on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Chartmetric. That's Chartmetric, no S. That's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.